What's that? Well, as far as I know, I've always heard it as Haggai. Uh, okay. If anybody else has heard anything else? Haggai. Really? Okay. Well, there's always somebody. They just always mess it up. Yeah. <laughs> You know, a lot of these guys' names, sometimes I find out the way I've always thought it was pronounced, I find out it's pronounced something differently. And whenever I did Habakkuk, you know, there's probably other people that say Habakkuk. And I've heard that before too, so I'm not I'm not sure. But uh you know, and Huh? Yeah. He does not say Mordecai, he says Mordecai. Okay, that's different. So, hey, we're, we're, uh, we're masters of the English. We can butcher up anything, so why not? You know. <laughs> well, we just finished Tobacco last week, so it's and, and so I won't have to say that name too much, so I won't butcher it up too much longer. So it's time to start a, uh, a new study. And we know that Habakkuk dealt with the sins of Israel, and because of those particular sins, there was going to be coming judgment upon Judah. God warned Habakkuk what it was going to be, or they were going to be punished. They were going to be punished by the Babylonians, which is the enemy. They were godless, they were ruthless, and they swooped down on not only Judah, but all the other nations for the most part too. They deported um, the people uh, in Jerusalem and, and in uh, the, the nation of Israel to Babylon. When 70 years were up or somewhere thereabouts, um, they were permitted to return home. 50,000 returned uh, back to Jerusalem. And we know through the book of Jeremiah there was a prophecy done by him that they would be there 70 years. And uh, how accurate God's Word is. Isn't that amazing? Uh, prophecies. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, give us a really good picture of what was going on after they returned. And of course, you can turn into Ezra and see how that went um, on a on a basis that's probably a little more background uh, to Haggai. Um, and so that that's helpful. Nehemiah definitely uh, was a book that I think we had studied uh, here probably back a few years ago. Uh, but it was showing what it was like as the Jews were, uh, after, as they were building the temple and taking on the enemy at the same time. And uh, we saw that God got them through that. And uh, then as they settled in, uh, sins came back into play in that nation. And so it, it goes. It's a never ending cycle. Anyway, when the people go back, of course, it's in ruins. Then they, they start building the foundation of the temple. The foundation is, is built and that's about as far as they went. Sixteen years later, you have that foundation and you just have a bunch of weeds growing up in that area and there's no temple there yet. And uh, that's where Haggai comes into uh, this situation. They got the job started, but there were many obstacles uh, as always, and I think we can take that into a, a spiritual lesson ourselves as we have our daily lives, we have a lot of obstacles that come up. Well, their obstacles really were the Samaritans, their neighbors, and you might, might remember the Samaritans are a, an odd mixture, uh, 
Jewish and other nations and uh, they didn't appreciate them at all anyway they caused all sorts of havoc told uh, the Persian leader that uh, hey listen here's what's going on there so it was kind of shut down for a little while but uh, even when it was time to get that building going again they weren't doing it and so what begun as a standstill really uh, for them is what produced well, they'd already been fearful and they'd become discouraged. They thought of their own survival. Uh, this is not the glory days, you know, as they move back. It's the places uh, in, in a shambles. And, of course, a lot of the homes now are being built and they're concerned about their own homes. Um, they they want to survive. Uh, they're concerned about their own welfare. So they stopped building the temple when they could have kept on or at least picked it back up. And this is 16 years later now, after you know you have uh, Ezra coming in there and, and nothing is happening. So Haggai comes into this story and he's got a word from the Lord. And he's going to tell it to the people. He has a message. And matter of fact, he has um, uh, a few messages. There are like four sermons in these two chapters that he gives to the people. They had become... Uh, really complacent. They had become lazy. They were despondent and going back and getting to the work that God had told the people to do. So that gives us a little little background of what's going on in Haggai. Another thing is uh, uh, just a little bit about Haggai. We don't know much about it. A lot of the minor prophets, you just don't know much about. Um, he's he's a tenth of the twelve minor prophets. He's the he's a post exilic prophet. And that probably tells a lot right there, doesn't it? You have a pre-exilic prophet. Now, who would that be? That's before, let's say, Babylon comes. The nations come. Um, that's, that, is, that would be uh, pre-exilic, where Haggai is post-exilic. I don't know if I got the wrong one. I hope I didn't call... Did I call him a pre-exilic? Yeah, Jeremiah would be your pre-exilic, and uh, yeah, Isaiah. Um, then you have the exilic prophets. You think of Daniel, for instance, right? Um, so then, so we see that he's he's uh, post-exilic after the exile, and you would say Habakkuk then would have been what pre-exilic before the exile, and he tells what's going to happen. So we're running many years later, but you can see, okay, here's what it was before the exile, and now we're going into now, what was it like after the exile? Ezra and Nehemiah give us a lot of details, and then now we scoot forward just a little bit here with him. Um, at least, you know, they're, they're out of their captivity. Um, you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi who are prophesying at the same time. Really all about that same time that uh, they give prophecies of. They're the last three books of the Old Testament and that's anywhere between 500 to 400 years before Christ. And then after that, there's no word from God for 400 years. That's a long time. They've been getting a word from Him and then shuts it off. So these are the last men to speak before God is going to speak through His Son in these days. So Haggai um, prophesied in a amount of three months. 
it would have been from about the time period of uh, September through December. And so not a lot of time is given here. Um, his name is uh, means festival. And it could be, yeah, you got it there, festival. It could be that maybe he was born during one of the festivals. We, we don't know. Um, in fact, as I say, we just don't know much about his background, his lineage, his family. Not much information. Some of these other guys, we do. We get a lot of information. But he's been, um, he has been delivered with those people that are back in their homeland. And uh, if he was taken as a very, very, very young boy, he is a pretty old man by now. Because if you're talking close to 70 years, and so he's been around. Uh, let's say if he if he had been there as a young one, uh, that would have been the very glory days. Can you imagine remembering that temple and how great it was from Solomon's temple, and now all of a sudden it's not there? You know, you go back and all you see is a foundation. Uh, so anyway, rather than preaching like like the other minor prophets about compromise in the society and in the government and all the problems that they had and all that we saw in Habakkuk, all the sins of Israel, all the sins of Babylon, um, the corruption and all that's involved in there. This time, it's different. It's dealing with the complacency of people. And um, so that's really what his prophecy is about. That's kind of interesting. You wouldn't consider complacency to be much of a sin. What, what's that book you guys study on Fridays? What is that? Respectable sins. It wasn't they, they were doing some of the things that had been done before, but God says, okay, listen, we've got to change things. And so there's the sin here of procrastination. So four messages done in two chapters. This is a really small book. And you'll notice that each message actually begins with a date when they were given. And uh, people who are pretty accurate going back in their mathematics and the calendar, like in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet. Now, in our day and age, the date's been given here. It's an equivalent. I'll get pretty close here, but some say this was the 29th of August, 520 B.C. The 29th of August. But that's getting pretty accurate. Uh, then if you turn to chapter 2, verse 1, you'll see a second message there. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying... That is the 17th of October, 520 B.C. And, of course, you keep going. Chapter uh, 2, verse 10. And the fourth passage is chapter 2, verse 20. And all the way to December 18th. So that gives us an idea of when this has happened. And then you don't hear anything more of Haggai. He gives us this information and then he's, he's off, off the scroll. That's it. So if you want to know what uh, what's happening, uh, a major significance is the building of the temple that needs to be built. And this is going to be called Zerubbabel's temple. And you'll see Zerubbabel in this book. Matter of fact, in the first verse you will see him. And he happens to be the civil leader of the people. And then there is also the priest. His name is Joshua. 
And so those two leaders play a significant role in getting this thing going as Haggai gives them the message and they are to articulate that and get that to the people. This temple that they're going to build, we're not going to see the temple built in Haggai, but we will know why it was going to be continued on. And of course, Nehemiah is going to have a lot to play with that, but it is never going to be as extravagant and beautiful as it was during the days of Solomon uh, whenever they first build that. Um, it doesn't seem to have that same kind of glory. It doesn't have the Ark of the Covenant. But nevertheless, God's Word, when it came at God's time, it, more importantly is that the Word of God was obeyed. And we see the people doing what God told them to do after they weren't doing what they should have been doing. God had a purpose and there is a, a result in that. So the first four verses deals with the sin of procrastination. And um, I know that, boom, that, that can hit all of us <laughs> when it comes to certain things that we have to get done. Sometimes we put things off. Well, they were doing it here. Why don't we read those first four verses? In the uh, second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? We'll stop there. What's going on? Well, at this time, he gets a message. Now, we know that this happens to be, if this be... Um, this particular time someone has said is almost like like it was like a Sabbath. It was a, a day of rest. It was a holy day. It was a day when they would worship God. It was a day when even though they don't have a temple, they would come together to worship. And it was a day where the people came to listen what the message of God was. And the prophet of God happens to be there. Haggai. So, if, uh, if you like, we can say Haggai had a captive audience as he gives a fresh word of God to them. And it is really fresh. And um, I'm sure that they were happy to hear about this, but it's directed to two people, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Uh, Zerubbabel, civil leader. Joshua uh, is the religious leader. He's the uh, spiritual leader. He is the uh, one who is the high priest. And Zerubbabel actually comes in the messianic line. That's interesting because that would be the the king. And and of course, at this time, he's not a king, but he's in that he would be in a kingly line of Judah. And so he would be in that line that is pointing to the Messiah. And that's what all the Old Testament is about, isn't it? It's pointing to the Messiah and the fulfillment of all these prophecies. Everything's going that way. So he was in the related lineage to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he doesn't know it. And Joshua, being the high priest, he's going to lead the people, hopefully, back to God, spiritually, in a, in a deeper way. Um, so, anyway, uh, he's, um, Haggai is wanting to ignite the Word of God 
onto these leaders as they would then pass it on to these people and they would be inspired. And so leadership is very helpful in getting people having the fire lit underneath them. John Wesley, I think, said this, if your pulpit is on fire, they'll come to what you've earned. <laughs> and so anyway, we want to kind of look at this first point of, uh, of this outline. And it's not yet time. That's what the people have been saying. God is saying, hey, I know what you've been saying. God is reading their mind. He <laughs> knows what they're saying. It kind of reminds you of Jesus in John 4 with the uh, Samaritan woman. And he already knew uh, what her life was like, right? But um, in this case, uh, they're going around saying, well, it's not time to do that yet. And there are probably different reasons why that'd be. And God is coming in with its message of rebuke for putting off something that should have been done. And the reason we know that is that it's repeated constantly. They say, the time has not come. The time has not come. Surely the time has not come. No, this is not it. This is not the time to do this. And God is coming along and saying, your time is come. <laughs> and you need to get to it right now. You have a remnant of 50,000 that had come all the way from Babylon. And, um, of course, 16 years, uh, many of them had, had been there, if, unless they'd been born at that time. They, uh, they're in a situation, they accept a situation that probably they made fatalistic. Maybe they just gave up on the thought of anything else coming out of this. There lays the foundation. Oh well, we can't get it done. They resign to nothing. They're, they're just going to continue on as, as they go on. They couldn't do anything about their situation. That's, that's the way they're seeing it. And what a predicament, right? Well, it, it could be that maybe they had a wrong misunderstanding of prophecy. And that definitely can happen. Um, Jeremiah 25.12 it relates the 70-year captivity and then they'd return home. What they're doing is trying to add it up. Surely this, well, this is not the time that's supposed to happen. In Jeremiah 25.12 it says, Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon, and that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. So he says, they're not going to be there forever. And this is really probably the first real statement that is understood on the length of this exile. And, uh, of course, you run into all sorts of mathematical issues, but the, the idea is God has a mind and plan of how it's going to be. The people are probably thinking, no, this is not quite the same time. Now, Daniel picked up on that, and in his prophecy, while he was in exile, Jeremiah is pre-exilic, Daniel is during the exile, and it's like he's thinking of that prophet Jeremiah who had mentioned that and started clicking. In Daniel 9.1, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books 
the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. That's when Daniel really started, uh, the prayer that he has is recorded here in Daniel 9 uh, for his people. And uh, he includes himself in there as he confesses their sin and what a great God that he is. But uh, he's discovered something in the Word of God and he uh, he's saying, hey, it's it's time to... It's right at the door to to get going back and get this thing moving. So there's, but they're thinking maybe that seventy year period it hadn't elapsed. Uh, maybe uh, they're outside of God's calendar. Oh, it's not time yet. Uh, and then God is telling people there, you know, what He knows that they're thinking. There was a guy by the name of William Carey, a missionary. William Carey had a vision to bring the gospel to lost people in a big way. And there were people who didn't think that he really should do that. And so uh, there was a guy who said this, Young man, as he said to William Carey, sit down and when God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your aid or mine. (laughs) He was wrong. God used William Carey to get that going. It took years, but it took somebody to do that. But um, sometimes I think it's awful easy to get into the attitude of those who believe, people who are true believers, that it's just hopeless for God in these days to move. Because there's no such thing as prophecy of, let's say, a revival. I mean, I would love to see a revival. It's not stated in Scripture that we're going to have a revival, but could God do a revival? You bet you, any time. So I would love, I would, I would pray for revival. Do pray for revival. I want to be part of it. You know, you guys do too. But we could read in Scripture and say, well, nowhere in there it says it's going to happen. It's just going to get worse. Yeah, but during that time, what has happened? Well, we've had a, a we had a Reformation that was pretty major. <laughs> What, about 500 years ago? Uh, Then we had a great awakening after that. And there have been pockets. Of course, you can think over in uh, uh, Scotland, different places in in Europe where little revivals came up. Uh, They've been around. And God uses those. Um, Another thing that was a problem is just out-and-out selfishness. You'll notice the people um, actually were... It says in verse 4, they were dwelling in paneled houses. I have paneled. Another version might say sealed, C-E-I-L-E-D. Um, you wonder probably maybe what that is, but it's it's simple as they were living, living in pretty luxurious ways. Uh, as they built their own houses, they were feeling pretty comfortable actually in those homes, even though it wasn't a comfortable time to live in. But some of them uh, might have even had gardens on the roof. That's a pretty cool deal. They were taking care of themselves. Um, look at the time that they spent on their own homes and the amount of money and, and such that it took for them to do that. And he says, here is my house. And look at it. There's nothing there. <laughs> Just a foundation. 
the chiefest house of all, and you're concerned about your own house. They weren't content with just having walls and and a roof, but they had these paneled houses or these pretty fancy homes, gaiety and fancy, Wayne's coating. You know, I thought Wayne's coating was something uh, really something within the last few decades or last couple hundred years. I was reading a Matthew Henry and he used the word wainscoting like this. That's pretty fancy, isn't it? That's what he used for this, for this idea of their paneled houses, whatever it was. It's pretty nice homes where they could have been building God's temple. And it was lying waste. This was kind of the opposite of David, wasn't it? King David wanted um, the temple so bad but it wasn't going to happen in his time. He was the man of war and God was going to use Solomon to do that during the time of peace. But um, definitely, whatever it took, David wanted to do that. But here these people, um, you know, they were indifferent. Not only selfish, but indifferent. When they come out of captivity, uh, there's a need there. It's kind of started. That's all. Um, Blessing. Well, you know what? Even though they might have had, some of them might have had pretty good homes. Not all of them did. But if you uh, look down as the verses go, uh, we'll notice that, uh, especially in starting around verse six, um, we'll see that they'd have harvest problems. Um, they really have a hard time making ends meet, and. Food and and uh, all the things that they needed, they weren't being blessed. And sometimes you can go through that, and you can just become uh, indifferent to things, not even expecting that God can do things. They become kind of unconscious to it. They get used to that's just the way it is, and things aren't going to get better. We can't do anything, and that's probably some of the attitude too. Does this kind of thing happen today amongst God's people? (laughs) And and another reason they're saying, well, it's not yet time. So those are some of the reasons. They're selfish. They're indifferent. Uh, Some of them are saying the prophecy. Well, this this can't be the time to do that. Some of them were their neighbors. Uh, Remember the Samaritans back years ago and now they're feeling hopeless and what happens if we get started again and we get opposition, which they did. When Nehemiah gets things going, or when he had gotten things going, you think about the walls that were being built and such. I mean, um, anyway, he says, it's interesting. Verse 2 Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says. Most of the time in Scripture, he says, my people. But here he says, this people. They're his people. But whenever you hear that coming from one who does disciplinary actions, uh, it's time to get very concerned. This people. Okay. So they have a materialism going on, even though they're not being blessed. God blessed His people when they'd be obedient, not being obedient, even though they're not... You don't see a lot of sin sticking out there. It's basically they're just not doing what they should be doing. They're preoccupied. They like to have their own things. They're paneled houses. 
Does anybody have any paneling down in your basement or anything anymore? I used to have paneling for the longest time, right? There we go, paneling, right? That's what they meant, right? That kind of paneling? I don't know. Plaster. Plaster, there we go. <laughs> Wayne's coating? <laughs> That's funny. You know, God gets pretty down to the detail there. That's pretty interesting that he would say that. But I think he's getting to the materialism and he's saying, okay, you know, I haven't been blessing you. Now, you get to the next section and, and you get the judgment of God here. Now, this sounds like Habakkuk again. Well, it's going to be a little bit different judgment this time. He's not going to send them to captivity. He's not going to send the foreign enemies on them and give them all sorts of havoc here. Um, what he's going to do, though, he, he has taken the correction in his own hands, gives them the Word of God, gives them um, what they need to be doing. Um, he's very merciful, but uh, he's got to kick them into gear. And uh, we notice in verse uh, 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. That's the title of our deal tonight. Consider your ways. That's pretty good. Three words that would probably knock them right in the head. Consider your ways. Think about it. And he starts bringing some facts that they would know about. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. They're hungry. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns earns wages to put into a purse with holes. <laughs> God speaking here. Message. They've got agriculture problems. I think we could identify with that this year. There has been a dry spell. There have been losses in corn, even cattle, because the agriculture is, you know, that whatever you grow is going to affect, especially corn, it's going to affect your cattle, hay. If you don't have that, how are you going to feed them? Of course, I've heard of people's uh, livestock dying this summer. Uh, I talked to a guy the other day, and he said, uh, "Yeah, he had to, his horse died, uh, lack of food and water." Um, you see something really realistic here, and um, really kind of hits you in the head. You know, I'm sure a lot of us thought, I'm trying to put everything in an application, but makes you wonder: Is this a little bit of a, a little bit of a disciplinary? Action upon our nation. I don't know. There, there have been those before. Wouldn't necessarily have to be, but uh, it's definitely uh, possible that because of the kind of weather we've had this year and other strange things that have gone on, um, God can certainly use those. So He began to remove some of the things that they had become comfortable with, their material possessions and. Verse 6 shows he hit the agriculture area. You plant much, but you harvest little. Almost next to nothing. And I've heard, and I don't mean to shed bad news, but when you have um, dry droughts 
like we had this year. It affects almost all of the food sources. And of course, I know I think of the apples up in Michigan that back in the spring when the warm weather came, even in Michigan, which it wasn't supposed to be hitting up, and then all of a sudden the apples started growing and then they're thinking, what happens if a frost does come? And sure enough, it did, and it wiped out. How much of the percentage of apples were wiped out of our Michigan apples? A third left. They had a little left. Now, is that statewide or was that the people you... That was statewide. So two thirds was wiped out. What's that? Your guys did pretty good. Of course, they put a lot of money into saving us. That's the people that Johnny used to work with. Johnny Appleseed. No, I'll just. <laughs> Thank you, Johnny. Thank you for <laughs> giving us information. That, and, but that'll that affects the price of apples and all sorts of different foods and and the price of meat because now that you know, right. Hey, I'm not saying anything new. To you back there, Zach, right? I mean, I haven't bought meat ever. <laughs> yeah, you have your own right there. But if you had to, now, if you were going out and selling that, uh, because supply and demand, now what? Uh, it's going to go up, right? Everybody's selling right now because you can't afford winter. They so technically, the prices went down for now. They're down for later. Yeah. Come next spring, everything goes up. So we'll be paying for that. So it does affect. And I think there's some semblance to what's happening here. It might have been a little bit rougher on, on, uh, during Haggai's time, but we can kind of get an idea. The economy in their day was not too good. They couldn't meet individuals' people's needs. And as the saying goes, my take-home pay will not take me home. <laughs> And that's what happened in that day. The economy was going down the chutes. And uh, God had done it. He, uh, there was inflation. And whenever it talks about holes in the pocket, we know what that means. You know, as soon as you get paid, much of that money has to go to your bills, which electricity goes up, right? Water bill goes up. Food bill's gone up. No no kidding. The gas has gone up. And you're making the same amount that you did before. And you you have a lot less. It's going right out the pockets. There we go. Too much money. I think God is kind of like saying that here, isn't He? Um, he earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. So, we understand a little bit, maybe. Uh, those that lay their treasure on earth put it into a bag of holes. So, this is like they had holes in it because it fell out through inflation. They They would have to spend their money as fast as they got it. I think of Leviticus 26.18. The first section, blessings of obedience. Then you get into 26.18. These are dealings with um, disobedience and the penalty to that. If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. 
Also break down your pride of power. Also make your sky like iron, your earth like bronze. Your strength will be spent uselessly for your land will not yield its produce and the trees of the land will not yield their fruit. I can remember in Habakkuk where it mentioned, remember at the end of the book, one of the last things he says, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive tree should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. Habakkuk had a really good view of it. Yet I'll exult in the Lord. I'll rejoice in the God of my salvation. I'm going to trust in Him. Um, But those kind of things were happening now in the time of Haggai. Uh, This had been before. It's not as bad as it was, but there's something there that people need to look at. There's a, a thing called the law of the harvest. And uh, of course, in the uh, the Old Testament, you know, you uh, uh, well, you, you know, you reap what you sow. Of course, in the Old Testament, if you don't sow to God, then you're not going to have anything to reap because God's not going to bless that. If you sow something unworthily, you'll never reap it. And uh, you know, you, you think about in the Western world today, we have so much access to the Word of God and all the teachings of it and tremendous books, CDs, DVDs to help us all. And it seems like we are one of the most ignorant generations biblically ever in the history of the church. Of course, I know that... Got too many things taking it up, don't we? It means if we're not reaping anything, it means there's not anything being sowed. So that's what God is telling him. He's laying down. Here's here's the rule. I, I know what's going on. Could God take care of him there? He could he've done something about this, the drought and and uh, the economy. Why he sure could have. He's the one that brought it on. He brought on the drought. To wake them up. And he says, here's your situation here. This is why I'm not blessing you. I think the message is coming through loud and clear to them now. And so there's a reason for their poverty as we see in 9 through 11. We didn't read verse 7 yet. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, we'll read 7, consider your ways, <laughs> exclamation point, Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You took for much. Now we get back to that deal about the sowing and reaping. You took for much. You expected a lot. But behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, and you do have some, and you put it in your barns, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, 
on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your lands. Wow. You remember Habakkuk? He's, he used the same things when you think of the produce of the land, the wine, the oil, right? The olive oil. There's the grapes, the ground, the cattle, all the things. That's the same thing Habakkuk had been mentioning and though that happened, and, and it was going to happen even worse where everything would be stripped. You know, God, what He does is He's very patient. He's very patient, but He wants us to realize that we are absolutely, totally dependent upon Him constantly. It must be necessary to be put on our minds that we're totally dependent. And um, the cause of the failing of the crops was really visible. And then He says, by the way, I, I, I caused that. God called for the drought. The mountains... That's where you could have pastures and you could take the cattle up there and they could they could graze all the grass there for the flocks that would be up a little bit higher, you know, because sometimes hey they can they can go up there and find some. Uh, but he gave them a scorching, scorching even up in the mountains. Uh, the heat was too hot all over the place. The yields were all burnt up. Boy, this summer as we went through June and then July and it was already brown in July like. You could walk across the grass and you hit a crunch, crunch, crunch. And I remember that in August. <laughs> it was already happening at the end of June. And you can think of what was happening in the crops. You'd see the corn. It was all brown. It's just brown everywhere. Isn't that amazing? You look out there today and it's all green. And we didn't get that much rain. God is really a good God. He could have kept it all brown and never turn it back green again. He could do that. And one day He may. I don't know. But... I think it's incredible how good of a God He is, but when it's time for a warning, He does. So He held back the rain. He even told him that. Um, You've got to have a lot of rain in, in the land of Israel because it's really dry there. It's a dry area. It's, you know, we, we experience dryness. Well, it's, it's dry there. Uh, and if you don't have rain, you're not going to have crops. And so many times down through the years, He had to withhold rain. And uh, You remember Elijah? It was all that time where uh, they had no rain. And again, he, he sent Elijah a prophet because um, sin was going on there. <laughs> and so he withheld the rain. Economic disasters. If you have problems with um, natural things going on, then the economy is just going to um, have a harder time. They would toil in the fields night and day and really get not much. Uh, what's that? Isn't that amazing? This has been going on for time and memorial. Go back to, well, Adam and Eve after sin. God is in control. You'll toil, you'll reap, you'll work, you'll sweat. You won't have hardly anything in return because you're not obedient, he's saying. C.S. Lewis, uh, Lewis said this, pain is the megaphone of God. Have you heard of that, Janice? That is interesting. I think that was his book on dealing with pain. Pain is the megaphone. He yells out. Lou Gidley has said something about that too in one of his talks. 
Is that right? Yeah. Boy, that should be alarming to us. I guess that's really, you know, we need to really be in prayer uh, <clears throat> about that whole issue. Uh, the financial crisis, we may not have seen anything yet. Who knows what will come down the pike, you know, the stock exchanges and such. God is saying, I'm God, and you are a creature, and you are not infinite, <laughs> and uh, you are not eternal. I'm God, I'm holy, and I expect you to get to work. <laughs> and so, here here we are. Um, if He's saying, if you're not willing to give everything, then you're going to reap nothing. My, this sounds like one of my old basketball coaches. Boy, when you hear this message, all of a sudden you feel like nothing. <laughs> you just feel like everything has just been stripped off of you. You know, you had a poor performance out on the court, and boy, they would tell you about it. Well, God definitely comes forth with it. But there's a remedy. With God, always, whenever He brings forth the issue of sin and judgment, what does He always do? What did He do in Habakkuk? He comes back and tells the good news. Always good news. So we just can't be hanging in the bad news area. He is so good, He says, but we can get this taken care of. And by His grace, consider your ways. Consider your ways, He says. Remember in verse 5, uh, verse 7. Tells them to go up uh, into the mountains. Evidently, there were there was wood up there. A lot of the wood uh, had been burnt and uh, it were, or, or or taken down and used by the Babylonians. Uh, but uh, within these amount of decades now, uh, gave them time to replenish. It says go up to the mountains, get your wood up there, and uh, what it amounts to is okay. When when you consider your ways, do a self examination here. You have a duty now to do. When you've seen where you've been and what now I'm asking you to do, here's what you need to do. Just trust and obey. That's what God wants. He just wants us to trust and obey. You know that song? Boy, it says a lot. Uh, Matthew 6.33 says a lot. What's Matthew 6.33? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. How easy it is to forget about Him, though. You know, we, we, yeah, we pray every day and everything, but really seeking Him and His ways out and what He wants. So it's it's uh, it is worthwhile um, to do what God asks. When sometimes it's rather difficult. There can be in our care of doing things. There can be a lot of pain. And there can be a lot of cost. But it's all for God to be glorified. Go up the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified. He says, you want to glorify me? Here's what you do. You be obedient. Here's what will happen. You'll glorify me. And then, isn't that the best thing we can do? And this turns them around. I mean, it's uh, it happens in a very quick amount of time. By three weeks, they're building this thing up. Uh, we we finished up in verse eleven, right? Now, quite quite a judgment as he's brought that on. But they're saying, 
Oh, we do want to obey God. They really do. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, okay, Zerubbabel, civil leader, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, not just them, but the remnant of the people, the, the elect people, the ones who are believers, the ones that are there, they all say, let's do it. You've got to like this. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Don't you like that? They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. They listened to the messenger. As the Lord their God had sent him and the people showed reverence for the Lord. They could have said, quit giving us this bad news. Because that's what they did to the prophets before the exile. They didn't want to hear the, the true prophets. They wanted to hear the false prophets and how uh, they were going to live in a time of peace. Peace, peace. Everything's okay. It's all right. Keep doing what you're doing. False prophets. He comes in there. He's a true prophet. And these guys accept what he had to say. Now, they could have been different. But no, they, uh, they showed reverence for the Lord by being obedient. I think that's really good. They responded to God's Word. They didn't just listen to it but they had the Word in their heart and they, they acted upon it. Yes, they did. They did with what, what they had and of course what happened as a result of that, God, God blesses that, that effort. It wasn't easy for them then, was it? wasn't easy. It was, it was going to be hard. Uh, man, 70 years of captivity and now you have this 16 years of despondency and lukewarmness and uh, you know, within, within four weeks to get this thing up and get started, um, the devil would like to tell us, you know, you need to be more spiritual. The way that you are, well, it's going to take you forever. You'll never get there. You can't do it. This is impossible. You're not there. And all of a sudden, it's like you'd be thinking, well, I shouldn't even be trying anything. And you just start melding and believing a lie from Satan. He didn't want that thing to go up, did he? So if God has been speaking to us and through His Word and through prayer, if God has spoken to us about spreading the Gospel, don't... Wait till you feel able to do it. Don't wait till you do uh, do a course on it and a study. The time is what now. <laughs> the time is now. Yeah, right. Yeah. Verse thirteen. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, "Is what he said. I am with you. That's what God tells him. I'm with you. Boy, you can't go wrong with that." I'm with you. I'm here. That's incredible. I like that. I'm with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Now this is Darius. I think this is the third Darius. It's not the first one. So um, they would have that continuation, that line. Uh, You'll notice these people really 
as they obeyed here, and then at the end of verse 12, they showed reverence or they feared God. A proper fear. It's always been uh, said that uh, reverence is to be in awe and fear of Him. It's a reverential fear, of course. Not a scared, but seeing that He is so holy and so great. It's, it's, it's a relationship type word too in the Hebrew. Uh, it's a relational uh, type word in that, uh, yes, we're reverencing Him. We're in awe of Him. And at the same time, we are relating to Him in, in a way. So anyway, that is a holy fear. And I think fear in that way really goes a long way for obedience. Recognizing that He is the Lord. Serve the Lord with fear, right? Um, I think they had great um, regard to divine authority here. They know where this word's coming from. I think they're in dread of divine wrath because they know what happened before. They know all about that story. And they go, let's obey. Let's obey God. I just love that. That is really good. Right here in the first chapter, we don't have to wait four chapters here or three chapters, whatever. Right in the first chapter, we see all of this. Do you see how quick this chapter happened and how it develops? And uh, then we see we see the mercy of God here in verse 13 through 15. Um, the same prophet who brought them reproof also brings the encouraging word to them. Here's judgment. Here's bad news. Here's words of that, guys. But here's the good news about this. And that's the kind of God we have. Um, If He be with us, when He said, I will be with you, if He be with us, then who can be against us? Romans 8, right? Nothing. Height, depth, you name it. Nothing. He's on our side. He's the one that's in charge of this. And I think, you know, He said that to Isaac. He said it to Jacob. He said it to Moses in, in, in Exodus 4. He said to Joshua that. He said it to Jeremiah. And he also said it to the disciples whenever he gave the great uh, commission. Lo, and I am with you always. Right? And he said it to Paul as he went to Corinth knowing what he was going to face. Paul, I'm with you. <laughs> he is with us. So as we be obedient to Him and whatever that is individually and whatever that is to um, to the church, if we be obedient, He does bless. And so He stirs them up and that's all grace because they wouldn't have done it on their own. They wouldn't have been obedient on their own had He not stirred them up. Give them the grace to do this. And you ask me how that works and I'll say, well, it's always the grace of God. But He's always extending His grace. But sometimes we ignore it. When God has work to do, He will make men fit to do it. So Haggai is one. Joshua is another. Zerubbabel is another. And then it says, with all the remnant of the people, all the children of God. They forget about the wasted years. They break up that fallow ground. They seek the face of God. Ever heard of the verse, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten? (laughs) Judah had to think and rethink the priorities. And it didn't take long for them to rethink it, did they? Immediately. And the temple of God today is us. 
the church of the living God is right here individually and as a whole body of Christ. And so as we close, we will ask how much building is going on. Anyway, I like the book of Haggai. And there's one chapter left. There are only two chapters. Can you believe that? Quite an encouragement that we'll see in chapter 2. And we got encouraged right at the end of chapter 1, didn't we? You know, you see the Gospel there, don't you? Kind of how it works. God is so good in telling, okay, here's, here's the warnings, but uh, I can tell you, I, uh, I'll tell you how you can we'll get out of this. And Yeah. Right. We do have the message of good news, don't we? We are the ones that have good news. I don't know if you watch the NBCs or CBS News or Fox News or whatever it was or heard any of that today. I I don't think I did. But I'll tell you what, they don't have any good news. And they never will. You didn't hear about the Harvard professor who has that little piece of papyrus that says something on it that now they're thinking that Jesus was actually married because it makes reference to my wife. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> Always somebody.